welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Emily Hutchinson. And I'm your host, Megan Vole. And today we are doing a very special episode of a new mini-series called Hashtag Postdocs Talk, where we get a postdoc on the show and they talk to us about what their experience is like and uh, what it's like for them on the other side of the PhD. So a question that all the grad students are really interested <laughs> in is what goes on after the PhD. And today we are here with Hoberto Budzinski. Thank you so much for being here. Hello, yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you uh, on GradCast and talking about your experience. So first, can you just tell us very briefly what you did in your PhD, what your research was about, and what department you were in? Uh, so I finished my PhD in 2021 in Brazil, and my PhD was in physics. So I have my undergrad, my master's, and my PhD in physics. But my research was in between physics and computational neuroscience. So oh. I was using tools from physics to study systems in computational neuroscience. So I guess going off of that, what is what do you do for your postdoc <laughs> now? Okay, yeah. So now it's a little bit of a mix because as I said, I have a PhD in physics. I was studying a little bit of computational neuroscience and now officially I'm a postdoc in the department of math. So it's a mix <laughs> of things, right? But I think it's a... <laughs> It's pretty common in modern science now that we need to mix different knowledge and diff different uh, skills to, to produce research. So what I do now, uh, basically we are trying to develop mathematical frameworks to study neuroscience. Basically, that would be the very overview of my research. So during my PhD, I studied uh, synchronization of networks. So basically we can understand uh, a neural system as neurons that are connected. And these neurons are interacting with each other, and then at some point we can see that they have a, a coherent behavior. So they fire at similar times. And then in, in this case, we, we would understand this under a physics perspective as a synchronization behavior. So we can use these tools from physics and apply this to these biological systems and try to understand this under a mathematical perspective. Okay. And how do you actually study that? Are you doing like computer modeling? Do you actually have patients with real brains come into the lab and you put sensors on them? Can you tell us about what your lab research looks like? That, that's a great question. So during my PhD was mainly computational analysis, so simulations. We write codes, we have uh, the mathematical models, we can write the codes and then simulate and see the results. Now in my postdoc, so our lab is pretty diverse. And we have this nice combination between experimental data. So we have, I don't do experiments, but we have a bunch of people, uh, a bunch of people in our group that do experiments. So we have this part, and then we also do numerical simulations. And the new thing that we are trying now, we are trying to develop a mathematical framework. So we call this analytical approach. So we have equations that, like, we are trying to come up with equations that describe that behavior. So instead of simulating in a computer, we use our paper and pen and try to come up with ideas that will describe that system. Okay. So when you talk about a framework and, and the behavior of neurons, can you elaborate a bit more on that? Just for viewers who may not have a background like myself in, <laughs> yeah, in neuroscience. Yeah, so um, in the past 10 years, I would say, in neuroscience, um, the power of recording uh, brain signals has increased significantly. So now we can record a bunch of neurons at the same time. So what we can do now, we can not only study the behavior of a single neuron, 
how it changes as a function of time, but it, we can also see how a bunch of neurons behave at the same time. So now we have the power to see the spatial temporal behavior of a neural system. Not only the temporal behavior, but how the spatial configuration of the system is important. And based on that, we have seen a lot of sophisticated patterns in the brain. So probably you you heard about oscillations in the brain, mm -hmm. and this oscillation, alpha oscillation, beta, gamma, and mm -hmm. so on. Yep. Yes. yes. So when we record a bunch of neurons or different brain regions at the same time, we can see waves propagating across the brain. So this is the experimental part of the work. People go there, and then you can measure in humans, in you know mice, mouse, and so on. So you can see these waves propagating in, in the brain in different scales. So what we can do, on the other hand, is you come up with your mathematical equations, and then you simulate this behavior, these waves, in a computer. But also, what we are trying to do now is to understand what is the fundamental mechanism that generate this, this brain, these this, this waves in the brain. So when you need to run a bunch of simulations, it's, it's pretty complicated to come up with this general mechanism to explain this behavior. Mm -hmm. You need to run so many simulations, you, you can't do that forever, yeah. right? So the whole idea is that we will use these principles from physics and math, and then we can understand what is the, the, the mechanism underlying the, the emergence of these waves in the brain. And then we use this principle from physics, from propagations of waves, how do networks interact with each other, and then we can come up with this general framework, this analytical framework to explain what we are seeing in the data and also in the numerical simulations. Okay, wow, that sounds really, really cool. <laughs> and you explained it really well. Uh, but I have a question. So, okay, you were doing your PhD, and now you're doing your your uh, postdoc here in Canada. How did you find your postdoc position? Like you, you moved like across the o or I guess across some water, maybe yeah. not a whole ocean. <laughs> uh, but how did you how did you find that position? Did you know people? Did you have those connections in your PhD? Uh, actually, no. It was when I was finishing my PhD. I knew that unfortunately Brazil is not the best place now to develop science. We don't have enough money to to develop it, so I knew that I, I would have to move somewhere, somewhere to, to find a good position for my postdoc. So because I was working in physics slash computational neuroscience, it's a field that it, it has a lot of money now and a lot of positions. So I think the main tool that I use is the, this mailing lists. Uh, in neuroscience, we have a lot of them, and people just message like this this entire list with positions of postdocs. Mm -hmm. So I, I started to, to see these positions there and of course I was picking the ones that would fit with with my PhD and my research and then I just started to apply. So I sent, I don't know, twenty emails, thirty emails for these positions with a copy of my C V, a research statement saying, look, that's what I'm doing now, that's what I want to do in the future. Mm -hmm. Can we have a conversation? And then I got some interviews. And at this position here in Canada was, I, I saw this position in one of these mailing lists. And I saw the description, the description of the position. I was like, oh, that's perfect. I messaged my supervisor. We had an interview. And then uh, he, he, I got the offer to, to come here. Okay, so it's really just like cold emails. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. then, so, okay, you sent like 20 or 30 emails. How many did you, how many responses did you get back? <laughs> yeah, so that's <laughs> that's the tricky part. Sometimes you don't even have a, a, a response, right? 
I would say I had like 50, 60 percent of a, at least a first response. Yeah, yeah. And then I went through interviews. But, you know, people have different views on the same research. So I had some pretty rough interviews. Ooh. And yeah, I remember one that in the end of the interview, <laughs> the, the guy said, I think what you understand from as a computational neuroscience research is different than what I do. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. A little polite, but he's still, <laughs> still on the polite end. Yeah. Though. Yeah. Thank you for your time. And, you know, like it's always it's always good to the more you have these interviews, the more comfortable you you feel to, to do the, the other ones. Right. So it's always good to, to have more despite this not positive feedbacks but at least you have this opportunity to <laughs> yeah i was gonna say you know 50 60 percent return rate not really that's not a bad return rate when you're you're getting emails yeah no that is true uh fortunately i had um some collaboration with uh, friends that were working we were working in the same group during my phd so i had the opportunity to publish a good number of papers mm -hmm. during my phd and it's always a good card to play you send your CV saying like, look, this is what I've done so far. Yeah. You're going to talk to me. And I think mainly because of that, because it's hard to judge someone when you're not talking to them. Right. So the CV is the tool that you have to show like, look, that's what I've done. And I think be mainly because of that, I had this high number of positive answers from these emails. So then it would. So I guess my next question would be, you talk about you use the listservs that they would send out as your main way mm -hmm. of finding leads. W are there other sources, really, where, where students, if that maybe isn't working out for them, or conference connections they could maybe draw on? Are any of those... Are, are First of all, is the conference connection a good a good way to play? And then second, is there other out other resources outside of like the listserv direction that they... that aspiring postdocs could use to find potential leads or positions? Yeah, so definitely conference are pretty good to make some connections and know people and talk to people. Unfortunately, as I said, Brazil is not the best place with a lot of money to do that. And mainly because we are far from North America and we are also far from Europe, it's kind of hard and very expensive to go to conference. So that's why I use mainly these this lists. But definitely, being here in Canada now, I have the opportunity to go to so many conferences that I didn't have when I was a PhD student. So being a PhD student here, for sure, mm -hmm. conferences are pretty, pretty important. And the other ones, as, as we were discussing before, I think social media helps, for sure, because people are more and more you know, saying, oh, I have this position here, my lab is offering uh, this position. But I would say these this lists are pretty direct so you send this email for a bunch of people and then you can kind of like sort oh this is for me this is not for me and then you go from there because just searching on google yeah this helps but it's kind of hard to find mm -hmm. this website mm -hmm. and you know yeah. some labs don't have very up-to-date websites and all this kind of thing so these lists are pretty important because you, you have a link there or you can just reply the email mm -hmm. and then it helps a lot 
I want to ask a question more about your CV. So you mentioned you had uh, a good number of publications, and we know that that's important. You want to get a lot of pubs. But what else did you have in there that, that would make your CV like something that they would want to see? That's like, what, what would you emphasize in your CV? Is it all about the publications? Is there some other stuff, too? Um, so going to conference helps, right? Because it means that you can go there. In the end, like, research is about communication, so mm -hmm. you need to be able to go to a conference and talk to different people with different fields to actually make something bigger out of your research, right? And so this helped, but as I said, I, I didn't have the opportunity to go to many conferences. And also, some I had some experience that people would ask for my grades during my master's and PhD, okay. so this helped as well. But mainly publications, and then yeah. this is the measure that we have, that's the way we, we know if some research is good or bad, of course, this is not the perfect measurement, but this is the easiest way right. that we have now. So I remember that, uh, so I, I met this, this professor at a, a summer school, and he was helping me to build my CV to start applying for a postdoc position. And then I had like, I don't know, like 10 lines explaining about my research and what I think about science and stuff like that. And he said like, look, this is very nice, but put your publications first. <laughs> and then if they like you, they will spend some time reading about what you think about science. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So publications, they're, yeah, the, they're the key thing here. That that at least in my experience, it was super important. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I just want to follow up before Megan asks her next question. That's, but yeah, uh, So I was talking to some of my lab mates who are upper year PhD students, and they, I said, oh, I'm doing this GradCast thing. And they said, ask the postdoc if they think it's better to do a longer PhD and get more publications or to just try and finish on time, put it air quotes for the <laughs> you guys can't see me but air quotes on time uh so is do you think it would be better to stay maybe an extra year go over time just to get more publications before you start looking for the postdoc i i think these things are complicated not yeah. super simple right it does depend on the field that you're working on mm -hmm. i because i was working with simulations simulations are so much faster than experiments yes so if i had a bug in my code i would spend a week, if it was a complicated one, I would fix it and then I would simulate it again. Yeah. When you have experiments, it's much more complicated. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to say, oh, that's the way to go. It does depend on the field that you are. And one thing that I did, and I think this helped me a lot, I started to apply for postdoc positions earlier in my PhD. Okay. okay. Yeah. Because this gave me you know, I, f I felt like, okay, like I'm already applying, so if it doesn't work now, it's fine. I still have right. a year. Mm -hmm. And as I said, because I got lucky, I got these uh, publications during my PhD, so I felt that I was my CV was strong enough to start to apply. And then because I did this slowly, I would say, mm -hmm. and in advance, this helped a lot. Okay. So would you say, like, what year in did you start applying? In my case, I started to apply for postdocs positions in the beginning of my third year. Okay. So post, uh, PhDs in Brazil, they usually give you funding for four years. So I started in the, in the beginning of the third year. But as I said, like it's hard to compare with other, you know, like yeah. in my case, numerical simulations, everything worked super well. Our ideas worked since the beginning. So I got lucky and because of that, I was able to start earlier, right? In some case, just to 
have this the experiment running, it takes year so it's yeah. much more complicated <laughs> right yep i know that feeling i'm in biology doing yeah. lab, wet lab work and i just finished a protocol yesterday that took me one month to get to work <laughs> so yeah so we're gonna say you know if things hadn't been perfect for like you said your 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 situation was really ideal so let's maybe think about if some if it if it's for somebody whose situation is not ideal mm -hmm. um would you say earlier in their in their PhD career to start looking at options, maybe not applying, but like looking at what's out there? That's for sure, yeah. And, you know, talk to your supervisor. Because in the end, the way I see things, when you're doing your PhD, you're already, you're literally developing your career already. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the professor is there trying to develop their career as well. So it, it's, it, it needs to come from you. What I would do if I was working on a project that is not working perfectly. Collaborations are key and you can always have, a, 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 you, you need to have a, di a, a diversity of options, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, you have your main project and that's what you're bad, that it will work and it will give you a good paper, a good research. But also having collaborations with people in your lab, with other labs, this helps you to first to understand, to get to have a, a a better big picture about research. Secondly, it helps you to to have more publications to put your name out there. So I think if things weren't perfect, yeah, <laughs> in quotes, yes. <laughs> I think, I, and if I if I had to do that again, knowing things that I know now, I would do that. I would definitely try to diverse my research, talk to people, talk to to supervisors, and say like, look. The more I publish, the better for me, the better for you. So mm -hmm. if, you know, everyone helps each other, it will be better for everyone. So collaboration is also key for this as well. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay. I want to ask a question now about how you found it fitting into your new lab and your new environment. So uh, I feel like sometimes if you're a grad student, it's a bit easier to fit in because there's tons of you, right? Like there's other grad students in your lab. You, you're still taking a couple of classes. Uh, how, are you the only postdoc in your lab now or how, were you able to talk with some others? How did you find that fitting in experience? Yeah, that, that was actually uh, because I, when I started my postdoc here, I think I was 26 years old, so I was pretty young for a mm -hmm. postdoc. So at the time we had two other postdocs in the group, but in different stages of life, okay, so to say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I basically I made friends with the grad students in the group. And now our group is pretty big, I would say. Now we have, I think there are five of us as postdocs. Okay. And there are a bunch of PhD students, master's students. So yeah, <laughs> in the beginning was, it was very tricky, mainly because I moved to Canada during COVID. I had to, to do the, yes, the quarantine yep. here yep. and and everything to a, a new country and working from home. So the beginning was a little bit tricky. But then after that, the, my lab is pretty, pretty nice. And uh, my supervisor is super young as well. So he started at Western in 2019. Okay. And before that, he was a postdoc himself. Okay. So he understands what he remembers what being a PhD student feels like oh. or a postdoc and so he's pretty supportive and he helps he, he tries to help everyone and it was the same with me so that was that, that was pretty good for me to, to fit in. Okay so that actually is a great segue into the questions that I want to ask which mainly have to do around the postdoc community 
Um, so you, we did a poll on our Instagram a couple weeks back before your episode in, in anticipation for your episode. And a number of postdocs existing, I think, at Western or are thinking about it, they had a lot of questions about developing an academic community as a postdoc or developing relationships with other postdocs in their labs or outside of their labs. Um, so can you speak a bit about that? Like, how, how did you develop this academic community either outside of your lab or when you got to Canada and it was really tricky? Can you speak a bit about that? Because you're not the only one is what I'm hearing. Yeah, no, I uh, definitely. And I think, as you, as you guys said, like when you are a PhD student, it's a little bit easier because you have classes together and everything, right? And the tricky part of, about being a postdoc is that we have postdocs in completely different stages of life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, so we have postdocs in our group that they have kids already. They, yes. You know, so it's much more complicated. We won't go for beers after work mm -hmm. together, right? <laughs> and so I think under a professional perspective, it's always, as I said, it's always important to try to collaborate as much as possible. This meaning that it will have a paper together or not. I think just being in a meeting with people that are discussing things that are related to your research, you're learning from that. This will be good for you in the future. And under a non-professional perspective, so to say, to make friends and to have this community mm -hmm. and everything. I think it, it, it really depends. It's, it's tricky here in Canada. We have people from different places in the world. This this was not a thing, and no one goes to Brazil to try to try a better life, right? So we don't have this diversity that we can see here in Canada. So it was a very nice experience for me. I learned so much, knowing people from different places, making friends with different people from different cultures. So this was super nice. But I think. It's complicated to say this is the way to go. That's <laughs> mm -hmm. the way to go. It's it's so diverse that it's it's hard to to have one way to go. I try to. I consider myself uh, what is the word in English to describe that extroverted person. Yeah, extroverted. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. So yeah, this helps a lot making friends and everything, right? So we have grad club. Uh, then uh, we usually go at least once a week, <laughs> and this helps making friends and knowing people better but it's it's hard i i don't think i have an answer to a proper answer to that question no proper answers <laughs> needed necessarily just it sounds like you did a lot of things like going out and really putting yourself out there um which is still good advice for like our postdocs who are eagerly waiting for an answer here um what about was there any academic connections you reached out to make outside of your lab or that weren't necessarily introduced to you by your supervisor or, or lab mates, let's say? That's a good question. I don't think I made any connection by myself outside of, of as I said, like, of course, like a grad club and other activities. And here in London, we can find everywhere people that are <laughs> from Western, right? So that makes things a little bit easier. But under a professional perspective, it's it's hard for me to tell that because my supervisor keeps such a huge number of collaborators and always trying to do things with different fields. So we have collaborations in the hospital, mm -hmm. in the math department, computer science, and so on, right? So I never had to do that myself. So this was very good for me. And I think 
trying to to give an answer to that question. <laughs> it, it it really depends. Each different labs they have different perspectives. My PI, he's super young. He just right. started his career, so this has this brings good and good points and bad points. Usually, if you go to a lab that the person is famous already, this means that the person will have a lot of money, funding, mm -hmm. collaborations already. But if you have a young PI, this means that the person is working a lot to get through. And so it's always a trade-off. I think I got lucky in the end. My supervisor is, is super helpful and super nice in, in this mm -hmm. sense. So I, nev I never had to do myself this. It was <laughs> it was already there. Like this, this community in, in, in our lab was already there. So this was yeah. pretty helpful. That makes me want to ask about what qualities you want to look for in a supervisor, because you've mm. talked a little bit about, oh, you, yep. you can balance how much money they have versus if they're younger, they'll understand. So when you were answering, like replying to all those reply emails that you got, mm -hmm. uh, what were you looking for in a, in a supervisor primarily, but also in a lab community? Did you want someone who was more hands-on or give you more freedom, guidance versus, I don't know, what were you looking for? You know that that's a that's a good question, and I think it depends on the way you are used to work. In my case, I was definitely looking for someone to work together, than working for them. Yes. So this was definitely a big thing for me. So I had some interviews that I immediately realized that the lab has a very strict. Uh, you know, like positions, oh, the PI is here, and then after that you need to talk to this postdoc, oh, okay. and then after that you talk to oh. that. And so this was not something that I was looking for. And and and, and then that's why it was a, a very good fit for me here, because the way our lab is now, we don't have any, you know, like, oh, because I'm a postdoc, a PhD student needs to talk to me first, and then I will talk to my PI. We don't have this at all. Yeah. Everyone talk to everyone, you know, like in the same way. And we have meetings together. Everyone is more than welcome to, to join and to say their opinions. So this was a big thing that I was paying attention when I was applying for my postdoc, for sure. Yeah, I really liked how you said you're working with your supervisor yep. instead of for yep. your supervisor, because I think it might be true for the PhD. It's usually more of a for, it right? Is. Like they have the... <laughs> yeah, it is, though. Yeah, it yes. is. And so how was that transition from working for someone to working with somebody? Oh, it was great. <laughs> I was super <laughs> happy about that. I didn't have the best experience with my supervisor during my PhD. So when I came here and then I started to work with my current supervisor, I was like, oh, so that how it feels. <laughs> and it was very good. Yeah. Uh, I was pretty, pretty happy to have because I had this experience to work with someone during my PhD with my friends and colleagues that are they were doing their PhDs or their masters. Right. And it's a little bit different, right? Because uh, we have basically the same amount of skills and knowledge and everything. So when I started working here, I arrived to the lab and I was like, oh, that's so nice because this person has so much experience and mm -hmm. is willing to, to give part of that and to work with me. So this was super good. I was pretty happy about that when I found out. So I just want to turn back to that first lab experience. Um, did you get a chance to maybe scope out the lab before you started your position, get a feel for the culture before you started? I know some people have been able to do that, and some people in academic Twitter, let's say, mm -hmm. they do recommend doing that. Mm -hmm. um, did you get a chance to? Uh, in my case, I, I didn't, mainly because 
it was a very bad time regarding COVID, right? right? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. and I was in Brazil, so yeah. Right, yeah. And uh, in one of the interviews that I had, uh, so I applied for another position in Spain, and then I had the interview with the, um, the PI. And then after that, we had one day that it was mainly for me to, to meet the entire lab. So I had like 10 minutes talks with people, like students in the group, other postdocs. So this was pretty good, actually. Mm -hmm. And definitely, if you have the opportunity to do that, it's definitely better. Because in my case, I knew the research was pretty good. I was, I was looking for to go into a lab with uh, a pretty diverse research, so, so to say. So this combination between experiments, simulations, mathematical mm, approach, and, and so on. And I recognized that my PI had these uh, uh, features that I was looking for to have in a, in a PI. So this was enough for me to, to make my decision. But definitely, if you have the chance to um, actually meet the, the lab and people that are working there, this helps a lot. Mm-hmm. I unfortunately didn't have that, but in, in the other interview I had, as I said, and it's it's pretty helpful. Okay. As we approach the end of the interview already, I just want to ask one more question. What advice would you give to uh, late year, <laughs> Megan's shaking her head because she <laughs> wanted to ask that question too. Yeah. What, what advice would you give to a late PhD student uh, who's looking for a postdoc? What would be like the number one thing that you would tell them to do? Excellent question. A number one thing. I, I think I have a set of <laughs> number one things <laughs> yeah. that you need give to us do. a list. <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, as I said, try the more collaborations you have, the more you learn. It's not necessarily just about papers, but learning about different languages. It's so hard sometimes. You have a great research, you have great results, but it's so hard to communicate between different fields to actually make sense of that thing that you're doing under someone else's perspective. So try to make collaborations and understand this language that different fields are speaking. This is super, super important because it will open a lot of doors and you will find that your research can be applied to these other fields and they actually this is super necessary there but because it's hard to to make this bridge is so complicated right so collaborations for sure speak with people try to learn from different um, fields and of course try to to make if you can make this uh, if you can have a paper out of that that would be perfect and and yeah, I think that would be the number one thing that I would say. All right. It's all good advice. Though. Yeah, really yeah. good. Uh, if people want to follow your research or ask you a question or learn more about what you're doing, do you have any social media where they could find you? Yes, ResearchGate. You can search for my name there, Google Scholar. And we have uh, our lab has a website. Just search for Miller Lab and we'll have our, our, our papers there. We have GitHubs with all our codes and the analysis that we do there. So, and of course, like you can al- al- I was always message me and I'll be happy to discuss more. All right, great. So we will put all that in the description of the episode yes. so that you can find him. Uh, but thank you so much for coming on the yes, show. It's been you. really interesting thank having, you. Yeah, having was, your perspective. It was a great experience, thank you. All right, uh, let's wrap things up. So this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. Uh, you've been listening to a new episode called Hashtag Postdocs Talk. 
I've been your host, Emily Hutchinson, and my co-host was Megan Bull, and we've been speaking with Hoberto Budzinski. And this episode was produced by me, Emily Hutchinson. If you'd like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, you can email us at gradcast.sogs.ca, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, run Radio Western 94.9 FM, and you can find all of our episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the rest of your day.